Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. This is the first episode we've done since the election, and it has been called for Joe Biden. Uh, so unless Trump succeeds at stealing the election by throwing out a bunch of mail-in votes in key swing states, uh, we at least know the result. Um, so I invited Seth to come on and talk to me the moment we, we had a result to talk about. Uh, so here's uh, Seth from the Dividend Report back again for election talk. Say hi, Seth. Hey, Rio. Thank you so much for having me on. We made it. We made it. Yeah, <laughs> we did. We did. We did it. We de we defeated Orange Man bad. Um, and I, 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 you notice I instantly updated my um, my Twitter avatar to a, a crying Pepe the Frog with a red cap on. <laughs> you know that was provocative. I, I want... I'm I'm not being diplomatic. I've decided I'm going to troll the fuck out of these assholes. Like, the, yeah, they did it to us for four years, so why not? This is the thing. They can totally do it anytime they want. That's their mm. modus operandi. It's the liberal snowflakes. We're going to make them cry tears. Ha ha ha. Joke, joke, joke. So why, why do I have this knee jerk reaction whenever something good happens for the other side where it's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to make them sad. I don't want to step on any toes here. Let's, let's be think, let's be thoughtful. Is that just a difference in the way the two sides work? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't see the real divide, as you know, Seth, between left and right. I see it between decent and indecent, um, between liberal and illiberal, um, and uh, and between rational and irrational, and between sane and crazy. Um, <laughs> so, yes, it, it, it does say something about the two sides in that context, very much so. It does. I don't believe that everybody on the right um, sits, fits those descriptors. I consider myself on the right, but Trump voters certainly do. And expanding outwards just a little bit to being able to declare victory, this is this is just an important part of being human, especially like if you're into sports. When your team wins, dude, like go out into the streets, party. I saw this amazing picture of people like popping champagne in the middle of the streets in Washington, D.C. Like you should be able to take a victory, feel good about it. Eat, like there's all this negativity that's throwing around and I get it. I get it. But there is a time to celebrate. And that goes for both sides. When you lose, it feels bad. When you win, it should feel good. Allow yourself to feel good. Everyone who's listening to this podcast, the moving forward community, feel good about this. This is what you have done this. Me and Rio, we did what we could, but you showed up. And, and I'm so proud of you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, if there are any Trump supporters who still listening to, are listening to the Moving Forward podcast, then you're some of the more open-minded Trump supporters out there. Because uh, I have had almost nobody on the podcast who supports it. The one time that back when Corey was still co-hosting the show with me, the one time we had a, an actual contemporary Trump supporter on as opposed to a an ex-Trump supporter, um, he, he just about had me killed. So <laughs> have you guys Although I uh... do. I do. So to be honest, I do sometimes wonder like um, and this is a problem I intend to rectify in the post Trump universe. But um, it does seem a little bit uh, hypocritical and one-sided of me to say, like, oh, I'm willing to talk to essentially the radical left. I'm willing to talk to, you know, socialist curious people. I'm willing to talk to anarcho-communists. And yet I, I wasn't willing to have any, you know, alt-right, national socialist, fascist Nazis on, um, even though I kind of consider them to be the moral equivalent. I guess maybe that's the difference is I, the, the moral equivalent of a Nazi – would not be an anarcho-communist like Chet. It would be an authoritarian, tanky, Stalin did nothing wrong communist, and I didn't have any of those on. But um, I think just as a matter of optics, I need to start balancing it out by getting... Well, and first of all, I'd like to get some real far-right people on, which are not the same thing as alt-right. 
um, if only to help exemplify the difference between the two. A lot of people on the left don't know what actual far right, far right policy would look like. And you can tell that because they think we're already far right. Right, nope. right. So, so to me, someone I guess who's on the left, which honestly, I, these days I just don't know. But uh, my idea of what you're talking about here is a person who believes in the importance of a, a homogeneous culture, a traditionalism, um, and the importance of of conserving cultural values within a nation state. Does that sound along the same uh, the lines of what you're thinking? Well, I was talking about left-right spectrum on economic issues, not so mm. much social issues. Um, I do think that if you were to come up with a divide on social issues, it would be something like um, individualism versus collectivism. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there there are there are collectivist conservatives. That is a tradition that exists. I come from the individualist conservative tradition, um, which tends to be more right-wing economically, whereas a collectivist conservative tradition is going to be more traditionalist on social values because they believe that everybody should conform. Um, and if you think about it, that makes them a lot like the far left in the sense that the far left on social issues would want us all to conform to a certain kind of like maybe like an atheist state um, where, you know, <laughs> identity politics from the social justice side is forced on everybody. I guess you could say that. No, I, I'm more interested in the economic left, right? And so for me, a far right person economically would be somebody who opposes um, social security, opposes welfare, opposes um, uh, Medicare. Uh, it wouldn't describe Donald Trump, for example, right? Donald Trump is, is more alt-right and he is more of the collectivist. His, his voters do come from more of that collectivist conservative tradition, which is not individualist. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Anarcho-capitalism? Uh, Anarcho-capitalism would be would be far right. Um, although I actually, uh, I think I think anarcho-capitalism and anarcho-communism are both oxymorons. Um, but yes, uh, a lot of people on the far right do identify as ANCAPs. Hmm. You know, it's a it's a big square with many different quadrants. Four, actually, I've heard four <laughs> people say four, and it's it's so expansive. And somehow within this election cycle, uh, again, I guess we should say, hey, there was an election and a lot of people voted the, the highest record turnout in all of human uh, all of American history. Yeah. And and we 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 learned a lot and we have a lot more questions as well. And we're going to dive into that. Uh, Rio, really quick. What is your tech takeaway as to what happened last week, this week? Yeah, my, my 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 big takeaway really is that it went how I thought it was going to go, but not as much as I thought it was going to go that way. So I, you know, I I said to you on the podcast before the election that I thought it was going to look like Trump was winning the night of because they would count votes the day of first, um, and then over time, over the next few days, as they counted mail-in votes, Biden would take the lead. And that Trump would try to discredit that and say, no, 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 they should have called it the night of. Um, I really won. The mail-in votes are, are um, illegal, blah, 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 blah. And that's exactly how it played out. Um, but the difference is I, I had suspected that we might see what looked like an electoral college landslide for Trump on the first night. And in reality, this is a good thing, he was never really in the lead. Um, he was in the lead in a few swing states before, uh, you know, like um, – Pennsylvania and uh, Georgia and so forth. He was he was in the lead in a few swing states where Biden eventually um, took a lead himself. But he even if he had won those states, he still would have lost the Electoral College. He was never in the lead in um, 
and Nevada. Um, and they called Arizona fairly early for Biden. So that really makes it much harder for Trump to make his specious. It would have been specious in any case claim about mail-in ballots being illegitimate. But, you know, now, I mean, he would have to get the results on like several states thrown out in order to win. Right, right. After 2016, everyone rightfully was pretty skeptical about the polling. And 2018 was interesting in that the polling kind of realigned. People were all expecting, hey, well, maybe 2016 was some kind of massive fluke. We're back on track now. It really does appear that Trump has some quality about him. There is something about Trump that breaks the polls every single time an election happens with his name on the ballot. And, and Do you know and, what that is? I think I know what it is. Well, it's, it's his cult of personality, right? It has to be. Yeah, no, it's that. It's that. And it's the fact that, uh, you know, in 2016, they didn't wait for education um, was that, you know, Nate Silver famously said that if the pollsters made a mistake, it was that that they didn't wait for education. Um, and this time, I think they didn't wait hard enough for it. Um, I think that Trump overperformed expectations among white working class voters in key swing states in 2016. And then they waited for that overperformance based on his overperformance last time. And then he overperformed that overperformance. I think that's what happened. To me, I feel that this is correct inherently uh, on, on the night of the election. You know, uh, me and my girlfriend had sat down. We were starting to drink a little bit of wine and just trying to get this pit of anxiety outside of our existence. We suddenly started seeing the numbers come in and, and recognize that while turnout is a record, it is – like people are turning out for Trump and, and, and it's breaking our understanding of, you know, there was this desire that there would be a repudiation of Trump and all the things that he stood for. And, and, and you would recognize that Americans had some deeper belief in, in, in just being decent people and, and holy crap, actually, no, there, there is like half of this country saw four years of this and said, yeah, I want I want that. That's that's my goal. That's my choice. Yeah, and, I I think that some people saw this election as a referendum on the far left. Um and Trump certainly uh did what he could as a TV personality who knows how to read a crowd and knows how to talk to a certain kind of voter. Um knows how to speak their language, knows how to play on their fears. He certainly um made an effort to amplify that uh and to associate Joe Biden with the radical left. Uh, but I have to say, the Democratic Party made it very easy for him to do it. Biden did everything right on on those lines. Um, I would have liked to see him denounce socialism even more than he did. Um, but I'm worried that if he had gone to the extent that I would have liked to see him go, that he would have actually lost some of the left-wing voters that he actually did need. Um, I'm not so sure about that. And in the end, his strategy worked. So thank goodness for Joe Biden. But yeah, no, I think that, I think that, you know, the democratic party put Joe Biden in that position and it's possible that there was no way that Biden could have handled it any better than he did. But yeah, I mean, it's the fault of the democratic party that Biden was in that position where he has to worry about alienating the centrist center, right, center to center, right voters that he needs um, in key swing States on both economic and social issues um, in order to keep his base, or he has to alienate the base in order to get those uh, those um, swing voters. So the Democratic Party, if, if it learns anything from the fact that they almost lock, lost to the worst president in U.S. history, it needs to be that they they should start telling people 
like Bernie Sanders and AOC, who support social democratic policies that are not socialism, that they should stop calling themselves socialists because they're making it all too easy. Um, there are a lot of liberals who voted for Donald Trump or stayed home. Um, it was a referendum on Trump and it was a referendum on the far left. And so there was a lot of a lot of people turned out because they were very, very, very enthusiastic about defeating Trump. And a lot of people who were not enthusiastic about Trump turned out because they were enthusiastic about defeating the far left. And they saw Biden as a puppet of the far left, even though they're wrong about that. In politics, all that matters is optics. Yeah, that's 100 percent correct. I have to backtrack to how I came across to believing universal basic income was a necessity. And it was understanding that the labor market would be dramatically changing in the years to come. All the things that Yang spoke about in the war on normal people, like when this starts to happen and the number one job in 29 states and among others uh, starts to get displaced, you, you can't bet on people by themselves just becoming aware of what's happening around them. You can bet them voting on fear. You can bet them voting against ideals that they are told every single day by Rupert Murdoch Incorporated are uh, coming out to get you your culture, your way of life, tribalism, all of these things will be the thing that they go to. And it feels like we're already there. Even before the fourth industrial revolution really sunk its teeth into the labor market, we're already there. We're already dealing with a major portion of our population who are extremely, uh, like they're, they're ready to get out there and vote against anything that they consider socialist. And that messaging is crucially important. We have to get the messaging right. And Andrew Yang actually was on CNN the other night, and he had something to say along these lines. And I wanted to play that very quickly just for people to hear exactly what he had to say, because I, th I think it was extremely interesting. And we're back now with Andrew Yang, SE Cup, and John Avalon. Uh, interesting conversation uh, with Congresswoman Dingell. Yeah. You heard what she said. She's, uh, Democrats don't do a good yeah, job of speaking to, to working class people. What do you say to that? You're supposed to be fixing that. I had that experience countless times on the trail, Don, where if I would say, hey, I'm running for president to a truck driver, retail worker, a waitress in a diner. And they would say, what party? And I say Democrat. And they would flinch like I'd said something really negative <laughs> or I just like had like turned another color or something like that. Uh, and there's something deeply wrong when working class Americans have that response to a major party that theoretically is supposed to be fighting for them. So you have to ask yourself, what has the Democratic Party been standing for in their minds. And in their minds, the Democratic Party, unfortunately, has taken on this role of the coastal urban elites who are more concerned about policing various cultural issues than improving their way of life yep. that has been declining for years. And so if you're in that situation, this to me is a fundamental problem for the Democratic Party, because they, if they don't figure this out, then this polarization and division will get worse, not better. Is that real or messaging or both? It's real. I mean, Debbie just said they lost a, a, a plant that had 1,500 workers. And so if you're a laid off worker from that plant and you look up and say, what is the Democratic Party doing for me? It's unclear. Uh, and we can talk about a unifying message from Joe Biden. He's a naturally very unifying figure. But then there's the reality on the ground where their way of life has been disintegrating for years. And if we don't address that, then you're going to see a continued acceleration toward the institutional mistrust that animated the Trump vote and will continue to do so. Democratic socialism, Often, what, what Bernie Sanders says, I think saying, saying you're it's a not socialist, invented, it's not good messaging to say that you're, to call yourself a democratic socialist because then right. people related to actual socialist the, countries. Well, sure, they yeah, they the, the problem is that we're 
coding certain language to separate us into tribes. And I mm. want to go back yes. to what, what John said about Ohio. Ohio used to be the swing state, and now it's trending red. And you have to ask why. It's because their way of life has been heading the wrong direction. Yep. We have not done enough about it. Yeah. So really quick, I just want to say it's amazing that we're hearing this type of discussion happening on mainstream media because that's exactly the stuff that – like Yang is just hitting it right on the head. And uh, and two, like he's completely right. We're, we're falling back into tribalism and all of these things. I, I hope that more people – you know, uh, he's moving to Georgia to try and, and get on the pulpit and talk about Biden and swing some votes uh, as we move forward because there's this huge question of do we have the Senate? Is Biden going to be continually stopped? Right, I said at the last episode we had that was one of my worst fears. Are we going to have two years of stagnation and allow this this deep festering rot to continue? Because I don't think we can afford to have that happen. But anyways, what are your thoughts? Oh boy. Um. Okay, where to begin? <clears throat> I a lot of a lot of uh, mainstream Democrats saw Yang's statement there as um, yet another Yang-style dog whistle to uh, the alt-right and to um, their own form of identity politics. Um, there's a relationship between the grievance culture that Donald Trump um, took advantage of, where people are worried about their their economic prospects, um, and they frankly never really bought into the small government individualist um, style of conservatism. They were always part of that collectivist style of conservatism, which means that they don't like it when people tell them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They don't like it when people tell them that, you know, they need to take personal responsibility for their lot in life. It's all too appealing when they have uh, somebody like Donald Trump come along and tell them that it's all the fault of coastal elites and it's all the fault of uh, establishment Republicans and establishment Democrats, um, and that he's going to solve the problem as the ultimate big government person. Um, so yeah, I think that what we're witnessing here is um, the realization that for most of my life, the Republican Party elites were small government conservatives um, who are more liberal in comparison uh, by which I don't mean liberal in the American sense of a colloquialism for left wing, but liberal in the sense of the um, philosophy of classic liberalism, which centers individual liberty and small government. Um, but they're, they're a huge chunk of their voters are these ex-Dixiecrats who only vote, who only switched Republican because the Democratic Party embraced civil rights. Um, and so I can understand why some mainstream Democrats today um, would would think that Andrew is uh, dog whistling to the alt right and to identity politics grievance of the alt right uh, because on those issues you know Trump voters are wrong um, they're they're wrong to oppose equality for women and people of color um, they're wrong to oppose uh, same sex marriage uh, because they're taking the big they're taking the big government position on those social issues I need to in but, interject right here oh, very please, quickly. yeah go ahead. Mm -hmm. It's not just Andrew Yang. I was watching yeah. Hassan the Hun on Twitch last night, and he brought up uh, Bernie Sanders, I think. I forget what it he, – he was essentially saying the, thing, the same thing. We are failing the messaging to the working class. He said the working class, and then you get this barrage of far-left commentary on Twitter, on social media that say working class is a dog whistle for white Americans. 
Uh, and, and it's this really weird, bizarre thing that twists your head around. They, they started attacking Bernie Sanders. Like, let that sink in. They're attacking Bernie Sanders for using the term working class because they automatically equate that to white Americans. And, and it's very bizarre to me because the working class, the proletariat, if you will, like if you are going very far left, you need to understand that it is every single uh, race, background, ethnicity, whatever – are in the working class, but they are, they are like biting onto this. And one of the things that Hassan said himself that I think I am becoming more and more in agreement with is that this is like some seed that's been planted by some like right ideology to say, Hey, listen, we're just going to go ahead and run with this snowball. This is actually another piece of racist uh, propaganda and everything. We have to talk purely along the lines of social justice, purely along the lines of, of, of race theory. And if, and if you're not doing that, then you're only appealing to um, white people. It's a very, it's it, like, it kind of blew my mind open when I saw this happen. Yeah, no, part of what's confusing there is that there, there are um, neo-Marxist uh, people who take an identity politics narrative that's basically about the oppression Olympics, right? And so it's about uh, des de destroying cultural capital and um, in the same and seizing seizing the production of cultural capital, if you will, um, is the way they think about uh, issues like these. And so I do think that that Yang's approach of uh, of, of sidestepping these social wedge issues of not I trying not to alienate either side is the right way to go. But I think that if he wants to do it better and if our movement wants to do it better, we need to understand why not just far left people, but even just mainstream Democrats who frankly um, might actually even be center or center right on economic issues are still nevertheless very, um, very turned off by uh, a grievance, you know, this the combination of working class grievance with these identity politics issues like uh, white culture and so forth. Um, and they're not wrong to be turned off by that. That is, that is uh, a really gross thing. And um, I think I think that the far left it does have a tendency to uh, to forgive um, forgive bad behavior on the grounds that oh well you know working class people are all oppressed and therefore you know you can't. Uh, you can't, you know, hold them accountable for their their, their despicable worldviews. So Yang Yang is right that we need to do something in order to reach the white working class in this country. Um, and I think that it, that shouldn't be a matter of pandering to their um, racism, sexism, and homophobia. That's what Trump did, and it worked. But what it, what it could be is a matter of just not talking about those issues. Don't make the don't make the race about those issues. Make the race about kitchen table issues. Make the race about having a healthier economy and, and an economy that works for everybody. And I don't think there should even be a question about whether or not that's the right choice, because if they're willing to throw Bernie Sanders under the bus, they don't like they, they, they don't have any voice at that point. Like who 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 is who is championing your cause in the mainstream and in, in political establishment at this point? It, it is so far out there that it's bizarre to me. We really need to get down and, and like the question exists of what are we going to do in the next two years, whether we have a, uh, have control over the Senate or not to 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 somehow deal with this incredibly polarized society we find ourselves in looking at the final tally of numbers to to keep pushing our country forward and not fall back into this quagmire of getting so close to authoritarianism because that could very well pop up again in 2022 and 
the mm-hmm. the main thing right now is Trump is trying to do whatever he can to like we're going to take it to the courts and everything. He's so incompetent. He like that has been one word that has stayed through for the last four years is incompetence. <laughs> His lawyers can't do anything. He's not going to succeed. The best that he'll be able to do is just try and rally people up. Like it's over. It's done. He's he's the 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 weakest dictator I've ever seen attempting to try and and take control. But the problem is whoever comes down in two years or four years who's been looking at what Trump did and has been studying it, like that is a huge issue. We have to, we have to do something right now. So what do we do? Well, Andrew Sullivan um, made a really interesting observation about Trump where he said, basically Trump um, is not as effectively evil as he could be. And that's actually ironically because he doesn't have any good qualities. Um, in order to be an effective evil dictator, you have to believe in something bigger than yourself. You have to believe in some ideology that you're trying to accomplish, some great, you know, ethnostate utopia or communist utopia or whatever it is you're trying to create. And a lot of Trump's uh, supporters believe in that, but all Donald Trump believes in is himself. Um, he he is so caught up in just himself looking good and his brand and winning um, the. Uh, you know, kind of winning the moment in the media. It's, it's like a goldfish. He's not focused on the future. He has no long-term strategy, uh, but he's so focused on himself that he didn't have, he doesn't have the attention and um, the dedication necessary in order to push through some kind of evil agenda. Uh, it, it was, he was more of a bull in, a bull in the China shop, which does not help anybody. It doesn't even help Trump's own supporters. Uh, uh, really all it helps is, um, you know, America's enemies abroad, which is why the Russians like like Trump because it's chaos. Chaos is is when chaos in America is good for America's enemies. And that's all that all that four years of Donald Trump accomplished was turning Americans against one another in a bunch of chaos. So what I'm what scares me is that as bad as that is, and that is indeed very bad, and four more years of it could have broken our system for all I know. But what could be worse is if you have somebody like Trump, who is able to appeal to grievance politics, able to appeal to white identity politics, um, and wrap it all up in that bow, and then once taking power and creating a cult of personality around themselves, use it to actually achieve a coherent vision of evil, that would be far, far, far worse. Um, and so what I think we need to do is, frankly, um, I think liberal elites um, who who are still in charge of the Democratic Party and to some extent still in charge of the Republican Party, again, using liberal in the broad political science definition of it, not in the American sense of it being a colloquialism for the left. Um, people, uh, it, it, what, what needs to happen is people like Paul Ryan um, and Mitt Romney need to take the party back from Donald Trump, right? And, and even some of the ones who were uh, like Marco Rubio, you know, pandered to Trump a lot, pandered to his voters a lot, tried to help Trump get reelected. But Marco Rubio is a total moderate on immigration. For example, right? Paul Ryan and Rubio and Romney are all much more in favor of free market um, economics and much more in favor of a, a return to the bipartisan consensus on foreign policy that we've had since World War II. So the 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 elites, the liberal elites, are going to get their way in both parties for mm. the next four years, um, and that is a good thing if you believe in their worldview, as I do. Um, but it's a bad thing if what happens is it means that they forget about they forget about the threat of the Trump voters. They forget about the threat of the alt-right and the far-left radicals who hate the liberal elite establishment with a fiery passion. Um, 
if they uh, forget about that threat and just you know get their way for four years without any intent, any uh, without any attempt to actually de-radicalize those people by by doing something like UBI, um, then we we could be in for something even worse than Trump four years from now. Ugh, so yeah. that would be my big takeaway. It's like okay, you know, my side won. Now what my side needs to do is it needs to actually get some things done for regular people so that we can win again. Marco Rubio just yesterday tweeted out uh, in response to a picture of people celebrating on uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C. A uh, whole bunch of people, admittedly, too crowded together during a pandemic. I'll, I'll admit that. That being said, every single one of them was wearing a mask. Every single one of them. It's, you know, at least it's 50% of the way there. If you had a Trump rally, you wouldn't have anything. Uh, and he says, oh, uh, shouldn't we be making sure that uh, these people are not trying to spread the pain? Like he said something along the lines. You know, he's clearly trying to criticize these people celebrating in jubilation that the four years of hell that they've experienced is now over. And he's immediately like, now he's flipped over. Suddenly the pandemic matters, right? And we're about to see this. This is the big fear. Uh, we don't get the Senate. And all of a sudden, all the Republicans now suddenly care about the deficit. They now suddenly care about debt. They're now going to suddenly care about about the pandemic you're going to have nothing but obstruction and, and all that sort like I, i'm sitting yeah, there and a lot of at... those trump voters are suddenly going to to think that the pandemic is real too right yes <laughs> yes yes is that you that's this is the this is the problem of radicalization is it it uh politicizes things that shouldn't be political um it, uh, so yeah that's frankly i mean if you want to know what i think about social issues because we kept talking about i prefer to simplify things and talk about you know, the economic right and the economic left, which I see basically as capitalism and communism slash socialism slash fascism, all on the left, in my opinion, um, versus, you know, liberal democracy and capitalism on the right. That's the way I like to look at it. But that's because I think that all of these social issues are things that the government should stay out of. I think that the government should protect individuals' rights. The government should protect people from you know, being hurt by other people on the basis of social issues, um, but it shouldn't be enforcing one person's set of preferences. You know, like the as the old saying goes, like if you don't like uh, interracial marriage, then don't don't marry someone of another race. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't have to force everybody else to do it too. That's that's where the problem. It's when the authoritarianism comes in that it becomes a problem. Yeah. I mean that, and also if you don't like interracial marriage, you're racist, and I'm not going to be your friend. But you know. And it's a free country. You have a right to be racist as long as you don't act on it. I, I find myself in agreement, right? And that's another thing that came up is is uh, during Hassan's stream is Bernie says working class. But you think about all these these things that will affect the working class are also going to affect white people. Like we're not going to in, – in some world that universal health care passes, universal health care is going to go to racists. You can't you can't exclude racists out from that. I Like – no matter what you feel about it, and like, like I posted this picture, UBI, UBI too. UBI will go yep. to racists. The the thing is, is you we're going to outnumber that group, and just because they exist doesn't mean that you can like suddenly expand and say, well, we don't want white people in totality to even get anything like that. That is extremely problematic in my view, and and to really deal with the issues, you're going to have like universality in the the case of of uh, basic income, especially especially. You, you don't sit back and fall down to these divisive, these divisions. And that is what Marco Rubio's tweet to me only stood for. Marco Rubio is yeah, here no, to don't, divide. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, 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 when I say that I want people like Rubio and Ryan and Romney 
um, <laughs> the three R's. <laughs> right, right. And I say I want people like that to um, take control again. It's not because I'm giving them a pass for the extent to which they pandered to Trump. Mm. Romney was pretty outspoken uh, against Trump, and um, all three of those guys were for part of their their part of this um, this this awful experiment in Trumpism. Um, so I, I think it's important that we hold people accountable for the awful things that they did and said in defense of Donald Trump. I don't think they should get a free pass on that. But I also think that if we really want the Republican Party to be able to heal itself and move past this Trumpist nightmare, then at some point, at some point, we need to give credit to people who are willing to do, to lead lead the way to, to doing that, even if. Even if, you know, it, it doesn't mean giving them a free pass on their mistakes, but it does mean you at least have to start recognizing when they're doing better. Because, yeah, no. you know, and anybody who thinks that we're going to vote out and replace every single Trump supporting Republican in Congress is crazy. That's not going to happen. What will happen, though, is that a lot of people who were Trump supporting Republicans will now start to distance themselves from Trump and start distance themselves from Trumpism. And no, we shouldn't give them a free pass, but also, frankly, we should welcome that. Right. And I should have explicitly kind of said it beforehand, too. I mean, with Rubio specifically, let's and we're going to take a look at this. We're going to take a look at the de demographic shift, the ways that the demographics completely uh, baffled pollsters in so many different ways. But Rubio could be poised as someone to take advantage of the changing demographics in the country, demographics which by no means are just destined to become more and more blue. Like we, we know that for a fact today. Uh, and, and, and it bothered me to see him like after the election, what does he decide to do? It's like, well, we're going to go back to divisiveness. And, and the more that these Republicans who have an opportunity to lead forward in their party, choose that path, the more likely it is that we get to Trump 2.0 in the future. That, that may be my view, but you as an ex-Republican, I am interested to know how you feel moving forward. How, how does the party that you came from, how does that look in your mind? What would you like to see? What are you afraid of happening? Um, well, I, I, I was hoping that it would be more of a blowout against Trump, because if it was, then they would have an easier time distancing themselves from Trump faster. Uh, but we're already starting to see a little distancing happening. At a bare minimum, you're starting to see people like Lisa Murkowski, who was never really willing to say much of anything um, negative about Trump, um, apart from like, oh, I hope he learns his lesson when he when he you know doesn't get removed after impeachment, and I didn't vote to remove him, right? Um, starting to see people like that say, you know, um, Joe Biden is the president-elect that look forward to working with his administration. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you saw Fox News actually called. Uh, Arizona, and then and then called the 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 race for for uh, Biden when when Biden um, clearly had the win in Pennsylvania. So um, you are seeing a lot of establishment Republicans who were willing to pander to Trump and pander to his voters in order to get their way on 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 certain things like uh, like tax cuts um, for the super rich, not for the middle class. Um, you're starting to see those people distance themselves from Trump already. So I want to see more of that. I registered as a Democrat because I couldn't be part of the Republican Party when it when it became a National Socialist Party. I for me it wasn't just a matter about not liking Trump's personality. I think that they went moved hard left on trade and foreign policy, which are issues that I care about, even if most Americans don't. Um, 
And and so now that we've elected Biden, which I'm really happy with, and who, and who I consider to be the actual right wing candidate on those on those issues at least. And you're um, right. You are right on. I that. think that's a good thing. But I think I might actually switch back to Republican just so that I can try to influence the the um, the Republican primary next time around. And and yeah, I will be looking for the most untrump like person in the primary <laughs> and backing them. That's very interesting. Do you, do you have any idea of of what that could look like? Yeah, I mean, my, if I if I could create an ideal Republican candidate, it would be somebody who is um, unapologetically globalist in the sense of being in favor of free trade, um, and and not in any way um, uh, a, na- a nationalist. Not well, not in the the way that Trump supporters are nationalists. I mean, technically, the the definition of a nationalist is someone who believes in a nation state, um, and uh, you know we're all nationalists in that sense. But in the sense that Trump Trump voters are against globalism. And, you know, of course, they equate it with like evil global Jewish conspiracies New and all this order. crazy. Yeah, absolutely bonkers, crazy shit. Um, you know, America First was a slogan used by Nazi sympathizers leading up to World War II. That's the kind of group of people we're talking about, protectionism and isolationism, which until very recently was something that only existed on the radical left, like far left of the Democratic Party radical left. Um, so... I would like to see somebody who says, no, we're uh, <laughs> Republicans believe in free trade capitalism. We believe in trading with other countries. Obviously, we should come down hard on countries that violate international trade law. Uh, but the way to do that is to work with our democratic allies to collectively cut countries like China out to force them to, to behave. We can't do it unilaterally. It makes no sense to have you know, a trade war with Canada or the UK. That's absolutely insane, you know. Um, so we need to return to free trade. Uh, we need to return to a um, what some people call a neoconservative foreign policy, which is about standing up for um, democracies around the world, standing up against dictatorships. I understand that sometimes we have done and said things that were bad under that banner, but the you know kind of like people saying, well, democracy, you know, democ- democracies often get things wrong too. That doesn't mean that you give up on democracy. It means that you have to you know change your strategy. So I, I would like to see I'd like to see uh, the Republican Party re- return to being more of the kind of Reagan style of foreign policy, which is basically you know we are going to actively work with our allies to ensure that communists and other dictatorships around the world all fail and try to spread democracy. And then finally, I would like to see on social issues, I'd like to see the Republicans moderate somewhat on that. And and I think that it's going to be in the short term, it's going to be a bit of a balancing act, because on the one hand, they need to assure um, economically right wing voters in California and New York and up and down the coast in general. um, They need to reassure them that, you know, we're not we're not continuing down that theocratic path. We believe in individual liberty. But on the other hand, they also can't yet afford to alienate the more socially conservative, or I would prefer to say socially regressive or theocratic voters in the middle of the country um, too much right away, because they're still, it's not like they're suddenly going to start winning the electoral college on the coasts overnight, right? Mm. That's going to be a process. So they're going to have to play both sides of that for a little while. And I think the way to do that is to say, you know, we respect your individual religious beliefs, but like the, the United States government, we have the First Amendment. Um, basically, they need to they need to play the separation of church and state card, and they need to say like we are in favor of individual liberty. We are in favor of respecting everybody's individual rights 
to their own personal beliefs on social matters and 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 leave it at that like stay basically stay away from social issues as much as they can make it about economics and then finally embrace um a right-wing form of ubi which i have outlined on movingforwardpod.com Right, that so. would be my ideal candidate. Oh, and also in favor of legal immigration, expanding and making it easier for people to immigrate legally while simultaneously cracking down on illegal immigration, which is a huge difference from from Trump's movement, um, where they're actually just against brown people coming here legally or otherwise. Right. And they're, they're... well, OK, I won't get into that. But okay, this is very interesting. Do we, do we find ourselves in a situation where the right and the left both have within them um, two two <laughs> dueling interests, right? You've got on the progressive side, uh, on the left side, the progressives and the moderates, and then what you just outlined on the right. Like, how is that the dynamic that we're moving forward with? Um, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, there's I, so it was not a repudiation of Trump, but it also doesn't mean. I mean, this election was not a repudiation of Trump, but it also doesn't mean that Trumpism has to be whatever is pushed forward in the years to come. Do, do you think that what you outlined and what you wanted to see in the Republican Party, is that a is that a long shot? Or do you think that there's a real possibility of, of that kind of Republicanism happening? I actually think there is a possibility. And the reason for that is because if you look at how Trump won the primary, he had a lot of advantages in the sense that he was... Um, a, a huge, hugely famous uh, figure. More people knew his name. They'd seen him on TV. Um, they believed in this kind of cultivated persona of Trump as supposedly this great businessman and all of this stuff. Um, and, and so he had that going for him. But even there, uh, the reason he was able to run away with it in the Republican primary is because um, it was a wide field. And normal Republicans were divided between, you know, two dozen other candidates. Uh, and, and so even though Trump's enthusiastic base in the primary was only about a third of Republican voters, he was able to run away with it, which is, by the way, what Bernie Sanders almost did. And the Democrats learned from that. <laughs> you saw it happen when, when Biden won South Carolina. Everybody dropped out and endorsed Biden, right? Hmm. If the Republicans had done that earlier on in the primary – uh, and this was very early on in the primary in the Democrats case. If the Republicans had done that after Trump won one or two states. Um, you know, there's no way he would have won the primary. So I'm hoping the Republicans learned that lesson. Uh, I am hoping that there will be gatekeepers in the party who will say, you know, if you're left of the Democrats on trade and foreign policy, we're not even going to let you run in the first place. And then on top of that, um, they need to they need to make sure that, you know, that you don't you don't have a wide field of of moderates um, and, and actual right-wingers um, as opposed to um, alt-right neo-Nazis. Um, you know, you want to make sure that those people are prepared to drop out and endorse somebody. Hmm. So if they do that, if they do that, and if enough voters are like, yeah, you know, yeah, Trump kind of barely won the first time, but then he kind of got his ass kicked the second time, you know, maybe, you know, I can see a lot of voters saying maybe we need to try something different. Um, but in terms of, in terms of the Republican party suddenly being able to win on the coasts because they moderated on social issues, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a long shot and a long game, which is why I said they can't afford to alienate the people in the middle of the country right away. They need to start turning some of the states on the coast a little bit more purple, 
um, while keeping enough of the states in the middle of the country. And that's going to be a challenge for sure. But do I think somebody kind of like what I outlined could win a primary? Yeah. Even with a UBI, it's possible. Um, universal basic income actually pose, um, uh, pulls pretty well with Republicans. It's very interesting. Those are some very interesting dynamics. Um, re returning back to the election that just happened within this week, uh, I, it sounds like we both kind of agree, and I'm, I'm kind of happy about this. I expected that we might have spent some time talking about, like, what is Trump going to try and do? What, what, what possibly might happen? Can can he muddy the waters any more than he already has? It sounds like we both kind of agree that, that this is just not going to happen. If violence in the streets haven't erupted yet, it's unlikely to happen in the days and weeks to come. Uh, what is going to happen to Trump? Is, is he, <laughs> is he done? Uh, I don't think, I don't think so. Uh, what do you have to say about that? I don't know. I mean, I, I will be a little bit surprised if he actually does a graceful concession speech in the next few days, even though that is absolutely what any other politician would do under these circumstances. Um, but I won't be totally surprised if he does it. I think that if if um, if like his family, like say Jared Kushner, is able to persuade him to do it, the way they will persuade him, and Jared, if you're listening, <laughs> this is how you should. This is what you should tell uh, Trump. You should say, you know, hey, look, it was really close. You can honestly, you can go out there and honestly say it really just came down to a few thousand votes in a few swing states. You can honestly say that you got, you know, um, a lot of votes. Um, possibly the largest number of votes for an incumbent in history, even though it's still smaller than the number of votes that, that Biden got, you know, give him, give him an out where he can save his, um, where he can kind of like save his ego. Right. Uh, but also concede. Um, and, 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 you know, you're, you have to give, you have to give Trump, uh, uh, like a way to go in the future. Right. So he has to be able to tell people like, okay, we lost, um, but, you know, I'm starting Trump TV and I'm going to keep this MAGA movement alive and, you know, we're going to run somebody else next time around. Probably won't be me, but we're going to run somebody else next time around. If they can persuade Trump to do that and that he's going to make billions of dollars on this uh, media empire due to his, his enormous um, cult following, um, that's all he really ever cared about, frankly. I don't think he actually cares about being president or doing anything as president beyond making money and fame for himself. And also, here's a key thing. He'll be able to do all of that stuff without the constant attacks of the evil liberal media, right? Because, you know, now he won't be president anymore, so he won't be as much under the microscope. He'll be able to just get away with spreading his conspiracy theories and making money on it. And um, and and he'll, he'll someday soon, he'll even maybe be able to walk down the street in Manhattan without getting egged again. So, yeah, that that is a pretty popular... Uh narrative that i've heard that we've heard over the past four years so that that kind of puts us up between two dueling possibilities one is the possibility that um you're having to bet on his ego and this is why i'm so fascinated by his niece's uh mary trump's book about you know her uncle which goes into his pathological narcissism and uh, someone in my chat said something and i, I am looking at everyone's com uh, comments and i after the stream is over i want to go through and, and talk about everything because i've seen some interesting things but does he is he such a malignant narcissist that he even though he has this opportunity that I fully expect 
is there for him, Trump TV, right? He's going to, especially considering how people are now turning against Fox News and they're rioting, or not rioting, but protesting and saying Fox News sucks. These Republicans who, who are mad that they called Arizona. Uh, <laughs> he's got the opportunity to create his own news network and, 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 and salvage what little is left of his his, his empire. Because he was, from what I've heard, he had to salvage after his casino uh, downfall. That's when he started doing The Apprentice, and that's what kept him going. And, and it's all about TV now. That would be the predictable choice for him to make. Or is his niece's description and analysis of his psychological condition more accurate than a lot of us seem to, to think it is? And is he really going to to like take this to some next degree? Is he going to push some red buttons in the next month and a half up to the day of inauguration? Is he going to burn things on the way out? It, his his current actions, the tweets and things that he's done since since the election, since it was called, seems to suggest that 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 is an extreme possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 hard to say. Yeah, no, I mean that also wouldn't surprise me, right? Um, I, I think it might actually surprise me less than him giving a graceful concession speech, even though, as I said, I wouldn't be terribly surprised um, if he did that for the reasons I just articulated. Um, the problem is there's no way for him to concede without giving up um, on the conspiracy theory that it was stolen from him. Um, that said, even if he kind of has to walk that back for a second in order to give a credible um, concession speech, there's nothing stopping him from contradicting himself, you know, in the next minute afterward (laughs) and continuing to spread, Oh, I don't know. The more I look into it, it looks like this really was stolen. You know what I mean? So um, I would expect, uh, I would expect um, Trump TV to take advantage of the fix it. (laughs) It sounds awful. Fox yeah. News exit. Um, <laughs> and uh, and one way you could do that is, 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 you know, to say, like, come over here. This is we're fighting the fight against the the evil uh, liberal establishment, which stole um, our democracy from us um, and essentially become uh, like Alex Jones, but like uh, ratcheted it up by a billion times. Um, I absolutely could see him doing that with or without a concession speech. But you're right. I mean, Mary Trump's point is that he can never admit to himself or to others that he actually lost. And so it may just be psychologically impossible for him to give, make, to give a concession speech. He may just continue to say, like, to, to take it right up until the moment that he's forced out of the White House um, that he never really lost. That wouldn't surprise me. And if that led to some violence and 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 uh, other kinds of instability, um, yeah, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. We'll see. Will, will he like? So, I don't know. Will he suddenly like nuke Calvary or something like that? Uh, God, I think if I think that if his uh, I think that if people in the White House were worried about him doing that on his way out of the White House just because he's unhinged, that might actually be what it takes to get the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Yeah. That might, you know what I mean? Anything short of he's going to start a nuclear holocaust and kill, you know, nine tenths of Americans as a consequence of it. Anything short of that, don't expect uh, his people to stand up to him between now and 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 Biden taking office, though. 
Yeah, there's a lot to touch on there. I mean, a lot of people like to think that executive power has so much capability, but you know, there's someone holding the football, and and they can say, no, I'm I'm going to walk away from this. There, there's the story of the uh, how nuclear holocaust was avoided in the 70s or 80s because of a Soviet Union officer who said, I think this radar is telling us incorrect information, and he made the decision not to pass it on to his higher ups. People like people can flat out just say, no, no, you lost the election. If you try anything crazy or absurd, we're going to take the ball and go home. Like that—that that is absolutely what would happen at this point. I'm not concerned about that in I the slightest. I have to believe that's what would happen. Otherwise, I couldn't sleep at night until until Trump's out. Yeah, because you right. know, like, yeah, he is—he is a—he's a, a deranged lunatic capable of almost anything. Yeah, and just to address one of the claims in my chat is—is is, uh, Mary Mary Trump is is a political jab artist. Her entire analysis of Trump very well could be some way for her to make money. But I but no, once you if you truly do understand textbook narcissism, pathological narcissism, you have to understand that this is a, a true per, like a true thing. This is this is pathology. There's some, there is something wrong, and it's also a predictable pathology. You can expect how someone can react in some way. So yeah, Mary, if she's wrong, then we've got no concerns. And and she was just doing it to make a quick buck. And and really, at the end of the day, Trump is just uh, a, a reality TV mogul who takes it to the extreme. But ultimately, well, I at mean, the end I think it's day, probably both. I think uh, I think Mary is sincere. Mm -hmm. I think she's sincere and she also wanted to make money right but i'm not a lefty so i don't hold it against people when they want to make money right yeah that's, <laughs> that's the no thing. reason that's no reason to doubt the truth of what she said good i point. believe she she thinks what she said is true hmm. yeah yeah that is a very good point again it's always a little somewhere in the middle that's true so that's what we have to look out for in the days to come it's it's fair to say that at any other point in history we would have had a concession speech by now would you agree with that yeah. I uh. mean, this is absolutely insane. Yeah. yeah, it's this is this is ter I mean, we haven't been this divided um and this close to uh political violence on a mass scale in this country since the actual civil war. It's not nearly that bad yet, but could Trump ratchet it up to the point where it gets closer? Between now and him leaving, absolutely. Is it going to result in a full-on civil war? No, no, it won't. Um, even mm. even if he takes it to his grave that he had the election stolen from him, um, no, I don't think it's going to lead to a full civil war over over this one election. And this is but why I... we, we might we might see you know like uh, some some more uh, white um, uh, terrorism, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the most common form of domestic terrorism. Uh, during the Trump years has been has been coming from the radical alt-right, um, basically racist white people. Um, so, yeah, I think I could see a little bit of that happening. I could see people going after Joe Biden. Um, I could see somebody trying to take him out Rio, before he's sworn in. The correct term is Yal-Qaeda. <laughs> Yal-Qaeda. Yeah, absolutely. The American Taliban. And remember, the, Tal Van the actual Taliban Taliban also endorsed him. Vanilla ISIS. Uh, is another one that I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's is, the thing. Does, does vanilla? I mean, I guess vanilla ice was white, but like, is his audience? I guess his audience was was kind of white, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. significantly <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> yeah, the baggy yeah, pants and everything. He doesn't have the the the, the real cred. <laughs> yeah, like listen, you look you look at you look at pictures of ISIS in their 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 
trucks with the flags blowing in the wind behind them, and then you take a look at the caravans of Trump supporters on the road. Uh, a lot of people earlier in the year like to say, oh, these people are so – they've got Trump derangement syndrome because they're talking about how we're sliding towards authoritarianism, and they're listening to the radical mainstream media who are just trying to disparage Trump and, and cancel his presidency. No, listen, and back to your point on foreign policy, the – the the most damage that has ever happened to to America on the world stage has happened in the last week and a half in the way that Trump has disparaged and, and continually tried to dismantle faith in our electoral system in our elections uh, and just just today just a couple hours ago he's posting about since when does the media call the elections like he he doesn't understand how voting in this country works he fundamentally does not understand it and he and, and even though he doesn't know anything about it he's more than willing to try and tear well, it apart if the media had prematurely called it for him on election night he'd be happy right? he would have he not only would he be happy but he'd say like okay it's over no need to keep counting any votes yep, yep. i mean he said to stop counting the votes anyway you know oh yeah, I yeah. Like, he's not I, contesting any yeah, of the no, flipped so house he seats. doesn't have a problem with the media calling it he has a problem with the media calling it for his opponent mm -hmm. right and of course i mean obviously legally you know cnn and and nbc and and Fox News have no legal authority to declare somebody the you know the president elect. Um, that has to happen. You know, states are going to count it, and then the states will report, and then the electors will vote, and then at that time, Joe Biden will officially become the president elect. But that doesn't, you know, that, that that's you know, it's just dishonest for Trump to pretend like he has a problem with the media calling it. Because they called it for him last time around, and Hillary Clinton conceded that day. That's the thing. It's like you don't have to go through the big technical process if the, if the, if the opponent actually concedes. That that would that would be a real thing. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what to say about it. Well, that um, brings us full yeah. circle back to the education problem that you brought up earlier on. The people who voted for him are not they they like. And I asked a, a, a red leaning family, a MAGA family member, like. What do you think happens on election night? And he says, in every single election that's ever happened, the uh, it's been called on election night, except for 2000 with the hanging chads. I remember the hanging chads and everything. I'm like, no, it's never been called. The election doesn't happen until the electoral votes arrive in December. The media also, just projects the Also, how do they think it happened the before television and the radio? Right. <laughs> they don't understand how it actually works. And, and, and it's... That's just, that is testament to how much we've failed educational funding in this country for decades. Good Lord. Uh, so that's where we find ourselves at at that point. It's it's a little bizarre to me. But, um, you know, Rio, we find ourselves here probably a little bit close to an hour on in the conversation. Uh, I want to make sure that we cover a lot of the core conversations concerning the election itself. What are, what are, what are some of the things that you may, wanted to make sure to hit on? Um, well, I mean, we talked a little bit about how the Democrats um, made it all too easy for Trump to um, terrify people, right? I mean, we had a very high voter turnout on both sides of this election, and a lot of people were enthusiastically voting for Trump, but not 70 million of them. Some percentage of those people were enthusiastically voting against the, you know, Antifa Marxist takeover of America, right? And they were willing to do so even though they don't particularly like Trump, right? That that is uh, that is the demographic that the that the Democrats need to focus on winning back. Um, you're not going to get back the hardcore Trump voters, um, but you can get those people who 
looked at Trump and said, what a shit show. And then looked at Biden and said, oh, what a puppet of a different shit show. We need to reach those people. True. And so part of that is, look, Florida. Trump got like something like, what, 70% of the Cuban vote in Florida? Well, yep. as it turns out, people whose families fled from communism aren't super excited about a party that's cozying up to people who call themselves socialists. And like it or not, most Americans of all races and all classes don't pay a lot of attention to the detail of policy, et cetera, right? They don't, they're not all experts on, on political science. They don't understand that democratic socialism is different from is different from social democracy. And that even though Bernie Sanders and AOC call themselves democratic socialists, they actually are, their policies are actually social democracy. They don't understand any of that. All they know is they see a democratic party almost a, a nominate a socialist twice, yep. right? And they see a bunch of people, a bunch of far lefties in deep blue districts celebrating AOC as the great future of the party, right? That's why 70% of Cubans in Florida voted against the Democrats. That is that is the reason why, right? And it's not just them. It's um, immigrants from Venezuela. And and um, Trump outperformed um, his previous numbers on with African-Americans, with pe people of color in general. Um, he was actually saved by basically um, relatively affluent and college-educated white people in the suburbs, especially women, they were able to, in, in, the, in swing states, they were able to make up for the people of color. Um, you know, of course, the majority of people, color, people of color still voted Democrat. But the point being, um, they, they, they took that group of people for granted, um, and they lost some of them. And hmm. they probably lost Florida as a consequence of it. They might have turned Texas blue otherwise. There are a lot of mm -hmm. Latinos in Texas, and most of them voted for the Democrat, but not all of them. A enough of them voted for Trump, and his numbers with Latinos were better this time than last time. And the mm -hmm. Democrats need to ask themselves, like, is it worth alienating, you know, um, uh, like a lot of black voters, including black working class voters, a lot of them aren't super keen on socialism either. They don't want the government to, you know, take over, seize the means of production and tell them what kind of job they're going to do in order to be able to have housing and food. They just want they just want a, a fair shot at the American dream through the capitalist system. Yep. Truly. That's what most of them want. And 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 you know, it's it's um basically I I think the Democratic Party needs to tell the Bernie Bolsheviks and the neo-Marxist identity politics social justice warrior brigade uh to take a back seat at a minimum or, you know, take a hike mm -hmm. um, if possible, you know, and, and, but we'll see if the Democrats do that, then maybe they'll become, you know, the, they'll become like a new pro-capitalist, pro-liberal democracy party. Um, and then the Republicans, maybe will they'll triple down on, on national socialism and they'll keep getting some of those, uh, they'll, they'll <laughs> ironically, um, you, the thing that the thing a lot of people need to keep in mind is especially working class voters who think of themselves as against socialism, they're against socialism as a as a word, as a concept, but they're actually okay with certain socialist policies if it's benefiting them. Right. right. And as long as it's not called socialism. In Florida, um, they voted for a fifteen dollar like, minimum gotta, wage. You just got to like get out of the business of pandering to anybody on the social wedge issues hmm. and just talk about specific solutions that make the economy work better for regular people and don't call it socialist.
Yeah, unfortunately, I, I'm in full agreement with you. Like, even in the Midwest, look at the numbers. Trump not I, – you don't know how many stories I heard about all these these white women, these middle-aged white women and Gen X white women who were going to Panera group gatherings, and we were going to see this huge turnout from all the women who were mistaken by their husbands in 2016 to vote for Trump. And now we're going to see them turn back. The, he actually increased his voter turnout among white women by 3%. Or I think 2%. Um, I need to double check the number on that. He increased the turnout among white women. So there is absolutely, undeniably something extremely wrong with democratic messaging. And we cannot have more of the same. They, they yeah, cannot some, have more Something of the same. we need to keep in mind there, though, is that because turnout overall on both sides was higher, a lot of people increased their numbers. Like, you know, a lot, a lot of people's numbers increased in a number of ways because the overall numbers just increased. Right. But like, um, especially among like college educated, college educated white voters, I think that Trump in the end, um, we're going to, I mean, he had to lose because of some people, you know, I think, I think that both sides got a lot of people who didn't vote last time to vote for them. And it'll be interesting as the, all the hard data comes in to tease apart the difference between that and their overall percentage of, of different demographics and so forth. Um, but, you know, and that's the other the other thing I'm leaving out of this is that actually Joe Biden performed much better with white working class voters than Hillary Clinton did. And we always thought he would because he speaks like them. You know, he he's he knows he Hillary Clinton came from like kind of a upper middle class background and then became obscenely wealthy. Um, Joe Biden came from a working class background and became well off, hmm. you know. Big, big difference, big difference in terms of his appeal to, you know, regular people in the middle of the country. So I think Biden, um, I, 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 it was just a lot of people voted. It was a really, really, really high turnout on both sides. Yeah, up until this point, we've heard when when turnout is high, it's automatically good for Democrats. But but it, that is not true. It's when turnout is high, it, it just more than likely not turns out well for Democrats. The other side apparently has just never had anyone to turn out for. And now they got that. And you're right. When turnout was just so high, there were more areas in the country where the numbers just could not add up in Democrats' favors, and that's Man, where we you find totally, ourselves. You in. totally, you hit the nail on the head. That's mm -hmm. right. There are a lot of people in the country who pollsters didn't didn't adequately account for because they they haven't voted before. They waited for it after the last time. They didn't wait for it. Wait enough um, for it. Uh, and yeah, that's that's what it is. A lot of people. Um, felt like they didn't have a real champion in Washington until Trump came along. And, you know, hmm. that's kind of gross, you know? <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that's where I we... don't know. Like my, my, I, I kind of feel like maybe they shouldn't have a champion if what they want is Donald Trump. But I think that Yang, I think that Yang has a strategy for how to reach some of those people without all of the nastiness that, 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 that Trump went down, you know, because like one strategy for reaching them is to, is to really pander to them on those social issues. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that another way to reach them is to just tell people, we know these are stupid wedge issues. The government should stay out of that anyway. Now, like, let's talk about how the economy is going to work for regular people under my policies. That, yeah. that Hopefully, hopefully, Yang's right about that. And and Yang is, is putting his money where his mouth is. He always has. He's moving to Georgia. And I have 
uh, I was looking at on the top of Reddit, the top post of our politics before we started this stream was a headline about him doing just that. And all of the responses are people who are saying things like, well, you know, I wasn't too sure on Yang. I thought he was, uh, he was an opportunist, blah, blah, blah. The, the, uh, the response to his actions right now are extremely positive. Every single time he does, he's, he's analytical. I know I'm going to sound like a fanboy here and granted I am, but he, he, He's a strategic tactician, and he does extremely well moving forward. We have not heard the last of him. Ideally, Biden's going to understand this, and I've heard conflicting information. He needs some role in the administration going forward. He's a voice that needs to be heard. And uh, just as anecdotally, that's what I'm hearing upon more and more people looking at what Yang's doing. And that is great optics moving forward, you know, um, I suppose to wrap up the episode, my hopes looking forward, because we can easily find ourselves in a, a realm of negativity, is that we have to do something that breaks the boundaries of all of this ideological uh, back and forth, mumble, 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 words and this and socialism and capitalism. We have to do something that reaches a majority of people and, and says, hey, this is an institution. This is a democratic institution that has made your life better. You you, you are like the, the big question that Reagan asked is, are, are you better off today than you were Four years ago that that it, we have to boil this down to that and, and and stop asking anything else that is the thing to focus on and and really i can only see that as a universal basic income and we have to use the yeah. response to covid as yeah, our and initiative also universal basic income has to be sold as a centrist policy the freedom dividend really yeah it, yeah. it has to be sold as simultaneously reaching people who are being um falling through the cracks of our existing welfare system because for whatever reason they can't qualify even though even though they they need it right today but also but mm -hmm. also at the same time getting people off welfare and back into the job market right by because it, it's not means tested and therefore they can keep it while working and also simultaneously um uh essentially tax uh relief for the middle class right because the middle class is not fitting the bill for it, which means it has to be funded by a VAT. It has to not stack on welfare and it has to not be means tested. Mm -hmm. It also needs to be sold as a stimulus of the economy that will create jobs that will, that will put money directly into local dying ghost towns around the country and turn them into thriving metropolises of their own. They'll still be small towns, right? Don't make them think that you want to turn everything into Brooklyn, right? They'll still be small towns, but like, People will be able to buy coffee because they'll have money to buy coffee. And then people will be able to start coffee shops because they'll have money to start coffee shops. And then people will be able to be employed working in coffee shops because now there's coffee shops for them to work at. And on top of it, they themselves have a UBI on top of their wages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It needs to be sold as stimulus, tax relief, and welfare reform. It needs to be sold as a centrist policy, a centrist policy. If we do that, then we can bring people together. But if, you know, the far left ruins it by saying, no, it has to stack on welfare and it, we have to fund it with a land value tax, land value tax, that means you're going to be taxing people who are land rich and cash poor in these, in these, and you're going to make their lives even worse, right? And, and or hiking the taxes on the middle class. The, the, okay, well, if you hike taxes on the middle class in order to pay for it, then you're just taking money from one pocket and putting it in the other pocket. It, they, it's no good. It's no good for them. Um, and and that's just going to continue to perpetuate the the, the current um, class warfare and identity politics warfare that we have right now. Yes, white people are more likely to to own their homes. Okay, 
I, you know, like, you know, if you hate white people, then, and you hate homeowners, then you should tax the hell out of homeowners. Um, you know, I actually see people saying on the left saying things like homeownership is bad. No, homeownership is good. The solution should be to help more people own their homes, help more people own their homes, right? And if, if rents are too high, help more people invest in rentals so that, the, so that the supply of rentals goes up. So more people are buying homes. That means fewer renters, right? More people are buying their own homes that they're living in. So fewer, fewer renters, the demand for rentals goes down. And then at the same time, more people can afford to invest in rental properties, which means the supply of rentals goes up. That means rents go down. More people owning homes is a good thing, not a bad thing. We sell it as a centrist policy. Then you can start to heal this country. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's important to be clear on this point that I, when I arrived at a universal basic income, I had, I had come to the understanding that wealth redistribution is important, uh, whether that be in the traditional market as we know it, in income, in wages, it's important that people make money. Uh, and if you, in the absence of that, in a labor market in which automation or globalization and outsourcing reduces the flow of money from the top to the bottom in a in a in a fundamental and in a utilitarian way, that that's going to cause societal rotten decay. Redistribution is necessary, and and, and we re, we found ourselves in this place in society where wealth redistribution is socialism, and and. To some degree, it may or may not be. I don't know. Again, we shouldn't get so caught up in this. If if we are going to do this correctly, the redistribution of wealth cannot be something that divides the working class. And the working class is more than just the poor. If it if it is something that puts an extra burden, right? The entire reason why it works in Alaska with the Alaska Permanent Fund is that it is not viewed in a moral lens as Oh, well, that person who doesn't have a job or something is getting this money and it's coming out of my paycheck. No, it's viewed in a pragmatic lens, as in, yeah, he's getting that money, but so am I. I got the check, too. I'm less yeah. concerned about what he's doing I with would, his money. Honestly, I, would, I, wouldn't, I would not call it socialist. I'd call it human capitalism, hmm. and I would stay away from calling it redistribution. Right? Yeah. I, I would talk about tax relief for the middle class. I'd talk about welfare reform to help hmm. people – get off welfare and become gainfully employed. I'd talk about helping people become homeowners. I'd talk about stimulating local small businesses and creating jobs. That's mm -hmm. how you sell the policy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in a democratic primary, um, maybe Yang would have done better if he had tried that. I don't know. But in a general election, that is 100% how you sell the policy. Stay away from the socialist word. Stay away from the redistribution word. Um, you know, we can have arguments till the cows come home about whether or not it is or isn't socialist. I mean, by a broad enough definition, public roads are a socialist, mm, right? You know what right, I mean? Right. So like, like, let's move past the semantics on that. The bottom line is capitalism as a word polls very high with Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and socialism does not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. The point Just, that I'm like, you yeah. know, the left is really good at losing. They're like experts at it at this point. More importantly, the point that I'm making is that the end result needs to be pragmatic or else you will not succeed. And that's that's the danger is then it's a failure. And that's the last thing that we can manage. And uh, but going forward from there as well, like use a real life example. There are many, many stories, tens of thousands of people who have gone on unemployment since this pandemic began are now getting calls from their state unemployment uh, system saying, oh, well, there was a paperwork error and you need to give us the twelve thousand dollars that you got since March. 
and and like people are now becoming devastated they have the option of trying to uh say to to the courts and everything well i actually needed this money and they very well might win and everything but now they've got to get a lawyer and now they've got it's turning into this quagmire of a mess that means tested welfare always kind of results in so like listen biden needs to get up and he needs to say look we see these stories happening and that's not right. You need the money because this is a crisis. So we are going to fix this. We're going to put cash in the communities who are who are negatively affected by this because it's your money. And, and then whatever the, the proper messaging that you just mentioned should come into play. This is crucial. This is crucial. I, we yeah, have- and also, frankly, just look, take a look at there's a chart that shows like um... – you know, imagine if what what a line would look like if everybody in the U.S. had exactly the same amount of wealth and income, right? It would be a flat horizontal line, like from poorest to richest would be the same, right? Okay, and then you look at what the actual economy looks like. It's more like this, right? Some people have more, some people have less. Okay, now what our existing tax and spend welfare state does is it takes the bottom nine tenths or so of that line and it makes it more like that, okay? But it does it by taking money from the, you know, the from like the 50th percentile to like the 90th percentile and giving it to people down here, right? So it, it's it's reducing the amount of wealth that the middle class has, shrinking the middle class, in other words, while um while 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 bringing bringing people up um on the bottom now and failing to do up, so. Yeah, bringing everybody up is a good thing. But here's what a UBI would do: it would go back to this again. Okay. Now it's important to point out. That, w- that here it may look more equitable, but everybody actually has less money. Under a UBI, it would look more like a, a meritocratic capitalist system where once again, people at the top actually have more and people at the bottom actually have less, even though they all have more than they would otherwise. Right, they actually have more. But yeah. the left is so obsessed with equity and flattening out that line that they, 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 go, they do policies that shrink the middle class and trap people in poverty. Mm-hmm. As long as the line is flat. And and remember when I said it's just the bottom 90%, the top 10% under our current system goes, Pew! right? And so you want to talk about, it's not about the divide between the super rich and the poor. It's about the, the, the divide between the middle and the poor versus the super rich. Right. That's the real thing. That's the real thing. We need we need policies that are going to grow the middle class and and end poverty. That should be our goal. Yes. It, yeah. And and if you if if you know the way to do that is to take money from the obscenely rich people like Jeff Bezos and Donald Trump who don't pay taxes, right? Right. Not to take them from normal people like you and me, right? That's the thing, right? And and so you know means testing it because oh my god, a family that makes a hundred thousand dollars a year might get twenty four thousand dollars of their taxes back. Okay, well those people are already paying more than that in taxes now anyway, right? Mm. Maybe they would about break even if that. You know, is that such a bad thing? Yeah, there are if so many people. they can afford to like send their kid to college without going into debt, is that such a bad thing if they can afford to maybe invest in the stock market, right? Or right. Or, 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 uh, or, or, or open a wine shop downtown? Mm-hmm. Is that such a bad thing, really? Or buy a couple of rentals so that the supply of rentals go up? Is that such a bad thing? No. But, you know, that the people who want to lump the middle class as the petite bourgeoisie in with Jeff Bezos, they're the ones who are going to ruin that policy. Yang's got it right. Fund it with a VAT because there's no way Bezos can avoid that. You are going to capture 10% of Amazon's not profit, gross net income every year. Yes. Every year. That's yes. where the money should be coming from. 
Yeah, and it, I, like I see you having these, uh, you you make these tweets all the time, and and like if, for anyone who doesn't get it, you're bringing up the the the, the point that we need a pragmatic, tangible outcome for not just poor people and not just middle class people, but but everyone needs to feel that lift up and boost or else it's just not going to work and the outcome's going to be worse than if we had done nothing. It'll be worse to the outcome of the universal basic income in general, uh, the movement in general. Yeah, I know, and the truth of the matter is, Yang's policy really is a win-win situation because even though Jeff Bezos, you know, through his um his most of his wealth is tied up in his shares of Amazon, right? Mm. So even though Amazon paying more tax, it means in practice Bezos is paying more tax on his wealth, nevertheless, because of all the extra discretionary income that regular Americans have, Amazon's still going to end up making more money too. Right. You know, but but you know, um this is something that the alt-right and the far left have in common. They both have a zero-sum view of human relations where, you know, one side has to win and the other side has to lose. That's not correct. Liberals have this right. Classic liberals understand that you need mutually beneficial exchange. That is the way to make the world a better place. Yes, and, and, and that is the nature of, of how we can do it in a society with relative abundance. And and so, yeah, Okay, so maybe we can dumb it down to that. Can can the Biden administration take on the gospel of abundance? Uh, hopefully they can, and we can move forward. Uh, does it? Do, so just to to wrap this up, do you think do you think that it's crucial that the Senate goes blue, or can we I do mean, it, it without it? Help. It uh-huh. would certainly help. Um, I think it's crucial that Andrew Yang start setting up meetings with every member of the House and every member member of the Senate, Republican and Democrat, one at a time and convince them to support a certain piece of legislation called the Freedom Dividend, and that he needs to sell it to them as a centrist policy, not as a crazy far-left policy, not as a libertarian Trojan horse to destroy the safety net policy, as a centrist policy. You know, um, some people think that the, the Overton window is the problem, and that we just all we need to do to solve America's problems is expand it so that now we can include fascism and communism. No. What we need is we need an alternative approach to centrism. We need we need liberalism 2.0. We need to upgrade capitalism. We need to see deeper into the Overton window, not look at the fringes of it. If Yang can go around and sell people in Congress on that one at a time during a Biden administration, that would that would have a chance of passing and it would actually hopefully help de-radicalize people. I would like to, I'm still not so sure about that, but I hope so. Scale of one to 10, 10 being the most optimist. How, how are you feeling <laughs> like where we are right now? I'm feeling great. I'm on cloud nine because like I said, my side already won. Yeah. I just want to make sure that we use the power while we have it to make sure that we win next time. And that's, so that's where I'm going to be focusing my efforts going forward. Okay, well, I, I look forward to us returning to this conversation as more information comes down the road. This is uh, there is a deep part of me that wanted to be able to relax and and hang up the armor and return to my family in the Elysium Fields, but <laughs> it never ends. the The fight will continue on until the pro- this is the story of progress. So there there will be much more to talk about. I think. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh... You know, um, maybe maybe I can just do one episode a week instead of three a week for a little while. That's kind of a nice break. Um, I also thought that maybe I would allow some guest hosts to host episodes of the Moving po- Moving Forward podcast. Like instead of me talking to you, Seth, maybe like you can talk to Chet or something like that. <laughs> just to mix it up a little bit so that I can I could use a break too. I'm not gonna lie. 
Yeah, I would love to have a, a conversation week. with three you. Three episodes a week is a lot of work. Well, you've been doing a great job, and you're a role model to myself, and uh, like that kind of work ethic is extremely – it's enriching to, to, to lifestyles. Uh, maybe – because I, I struggle with this. I want to tell people, like, listen, you can put down your phone now. I mean, maybe after you donate 5 or $25 to the Senate <laughs> races in Georgia. But listen, listen, hey, I mean it. This is the time to take a deep breath. Uh, work on yourself a little bit. I myself follow along with my Twitter. I've started a 28-day challenge at the minimum of taking a cold, freezing cold shower every single day to challenge myself and make myself uncomfortable. But I've spent too much time on worrying about the state of politics. The world will also improve if you take a, a look at yourself and try to improve yourself. We've got until inauguration and beyond to worry about what's coming down the road. And Georgia is going to get flooded with money from both parties. Um, so, you know, the other side is going to is going to have money coming in from all over the country. And uh, and and a lot of people don't realize this, but there are a lot of Republicans in California. There's actually more Republicans in California than in any other state um, because the population is so high. And they're going to be sending money to Republican candidates in Georgia. Right. Even if they voted, even if they're part of like the 10 to 13 percent of Republicans who voted for Joe Biden, um, especially in states like California, they still don't want Joe Biden to have a democratically controlled Senate and House. Uh, so there's going to be a big fight in Georgia. Um, like, yeah, take a break, you know, put up your feet, have a beer or whatever. Uh, but, you know, also go donate a couple thousand dollars to both of the Senate candidates if you're if you can afford it. So uh, if my theory about when trump's name is on the ticket is correct i will see honestly i don't have that much hope about georgia there there are some crazy things happening there and who knows registration is open registration is open till december the 7th if you are in georgia if you are listening to this or if you have family or friends who live in georgia let them know if they did not vote in this year's election they can register and be available for the runoff well it was really close the January. first time around which means that at a bare minimum the the democrats did something right this time sometimes mm -hmm. they they try to run in like a socially conservative state they try to run somebody who has the same views on social issues as somebody running for mayor of LA, you know, right? <laughs> just, yeah, that's a huge mistake. Don't do that. You need to run like a more moderate person in those states. So it looks like the Democratic Party has a real shot there. I would, I would not consider it a waste of time and money to try to help them win. Um, and you know, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to switch my. I've been registered Democrat, so I could vote for Yang in the primary. I'm probably going to switch back to Republican so that I can try to influence the Republican Party to go um, in more of a humanity first direction. Um, and also recenter on its individual liberty, small government version of of conservatism rather than the collectivist kind, um, frankly. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, long term, who knows? I'll be with whichever party embraces um, human capitalism and and uh, liberalism 2.0. Hmm. I like it. I like it. I like the work you're doing, man. Thank you for leading the conversation forward. Really. Uh, who gets? So I want to say like. We're we're in a new era now. Is it is it still gumbo that we're we're cooking in the kitchen, or, or what's next? What what comes after gumbo? I, I, what, I maybe don't know. I'm what's the Star it Trek much? version of gumbo? <laughs> well, it's something that's made by a 3D you know food by 3D reactor. printed gumbo. <laughs> yeah, you ask it and it appears basically. Um, uh, that would be nice. I dig it. I dig it. Uh, Andrew Yang has been my gumbo. Uh, thank you so much, Rio, for having me on. You're welcome. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. 
Hey, it's Seth, host of The Dividend Report. I'd like to thank Rio for the conversation today. More importantly, I'd like to thank you, the awesome Moving Forward community. These conversations are hard. If you share my hope that discussions like these can happen more frequently, support the Moving Forward podcast at movingforwardpod.com. Look after yourselves and your mental health. Things are going to get better. I'll catch you all soon.